This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to do a sort of 2021 year-end wrap-up. So aside from a couple topics, which we're going to talk about, uh, including balsa wood harvesting, obviously that's used in wind turbine blades, and as they've expanded in size, uh, that harvesting is sped up, which is threatening the rainforest. So we'll talk through that, as well as maybe some possible replacements for that material uh, in the near future. Talk about Germany phasing out nuclear power, and Siemens Gamesa accepting bids to sell off the wind development arm of their business. And then as we do our sort of 2021 wrap up, we have five questions we're going to throw to our experts here about you know developments they see, predictions, and maybe some surprising things about the year behind us. So look for that in the second half of today's show. Before we get going, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you will find in the show notes of this podcast, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, where she's doing twice a month live streams and all things uh, renewable and wind energy. She does a great job there. So check out both in the description below. So first thing on the docket today, uh, we're going to talk about balsa wood. So obviously this is used structurally in wind turbine blades and the bigger they get, the more this has been uh, useful and, and necessary to increase harvesting. And of course, just like anything, as demand goes up, this is putting strain on this natural resource. Rosemary, obviously working for LM Wind Power, you have a, a, a pretty good idea of, you know, the vendor relationships and a lot of the materials that go into these blades. Can you take us through this situation with balsa wood? Like where does balsa wood fit in to blade construction? Yeah. So balsa wood is a, a sandwich material, a core, core material for making composite sandwiches. So it's just like the name suggests you, you make a, a sandwich. Um, you put like a, a fiberglass or sometimes carbon fiber skins. And then in the middle of the sandwich is a core material. So it has to be really lightweight. Its whole point is to keep the, the composites separated from each other. Um, that's, that's most of what it's doing. So the, the lighter, the better. Um, and you just get better, better stiffness without increasing the weight by making that sandwich structure. Um, and it also helps a lot with, with buckling, you know, like when you, um, tread on an aluminium can, the, it's very thin walled and the, the sides will buckle a wind turbine blade could do that too. If you didn't, um, make sure that you made the panels stiff enough, um, to avoid that. So you put, um, the, the core structure, you put that in the big flat areas, basically. So you have it a lot on the, the trailing edge of the blade and then in the shear webs as well. So the, you know, the like in, inside, Sometimes it's called like a box box beam. Um, the yeah walls that are connecting the upwind and the downwind side of the blade. So that's where it is. Um, 
And it was traditionally usually balsa wood and, I mean, it just comes from other, it's just a really common lightweight material. People use it to make model aeroplanes and stuff for the same types of properties. Um, it's definitely not the only core material that you can use. And actually when I saw that we were going to be talking about this topic, I had to do some research because I started, I was at LM from 2016 to 2021. And when I started there, I think pretty much all the shear webs were already made out of um, foam core material. Um, so it's like a, a plastic foam, um, uh, preferably made from recycled <laughs> plastic bottles or something like that. Um, and they were also moving towards uh, a foam for the um, the blade shells as well, so on the, the trailing edge part. Um, when I was there, not every single blade was made entirely from foam, but definitely... I feel like most of them were. I didn't, you know, go through and count. But to me, it felt like the older ones used balsa and the newer ones were using this foam. And to be honest, it wasn't like an environmental um, reason that was, it was chosen for that. I mean, the recycled materials was um, because it was possible to have a more uh, environmentally friendly material. But there's a lot of problems with balsa wood and the supply chain, especially. I mean, it's a natural product, so you get varying um, quality. That's one one issue that's just you know, that's built into any kind of a natural product. You can't control how the tree grows that that closely. Um, it's affected by seasonality as well. You know, it doesn't, you know, you can't just harvest all year round. Um, and then, yeah, the supply chain issues as well. I know in 2019 there was like a big a big problem for manufacturers that were using exclusively balsa wood in their, in their blades because um, the demand rose and supply couldn't keep up and there were big shortages and um, some people had to cease production of blades due to that. So I think those are the main reasons why um, manufacturers are moving away from balsa wood. Um, yeah, but it's certainly not the only material that you can use to make a wind turbine blade out of. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, there's besides obviously just the deforestation uh, in Ecuador and Peru and some other places, there's also just the fact that when people are, making their way into a forest to cut down trees they're doing so with you know with canoes they're taking trucks and they're bringing in waste they're bringing in food products leaving trash behind um they're, apparently they're eating some of the local animals uh i guess that's where they're getting their lunch they're getting some eating turtles and all these other things so there's just like a lot of ecological damage in general that this is causing um i, I don't know alan do you think this I mean, could we start farming balsa or is it not maybe a product that would work? Can we not dis domesticate balsa wood trees? I don't, well, not in the U.S. I don't think it's the right uh, temperature and uh, amount of rainfall for balsa wood. And that's why it just grows in specific regions. I, I, Peru is one of those places where it grows. Uh, the, the, I think that the issue with balsa, it is a renewable resource, obviously. And we have grown it for years. And I do think there are uh, you know, regrowth farms that have happened over time but if when the demand goes up so fast you can't keep up with it you, you, it takes time for a tree to grow right so you kind of have to be thinking several years in advance and if the wind turbine industry explodes in terms of demand you're, you're kind of in trouble and that's that's what's happening and the switch to pet and some other uh, plastic materials is probably the easier solution uh, obviously it's the supply chain is probably a little more uh, stable than balsa will be particularly now but on the recycling end and when we talked to uh, violia about this a, a couple episodes ago about blade recycling the the pet material wasn't one of those things you could recycle very easily or or 
burn is one of the, I think it's one of the things that they would set aside that they would find another way to try to reuse it. It wasn't like balsa where you could just burn it and use as an energy source. So the there's a real big trade-off here because you're talking about large amounts of either balsa or something else acting as the core material. And what we would do, and I think the relationship is here in aerospace. In aerospace, we would use essentially paper, right? Uh, Nomex honeycomb is a standard product, which is made out of paper. It's aramid fiber. It's basically paper. And it's put into this really funky shape. The problem is it's expensive. And the wind turbine industry has never used it. And I think there's some other things about water uh, that are valid, uh, that water ingression is a big problem. So I'm not sure what's going to happen with this balsa industry you know what will likely happen is that the whole wind turbine industry besides maybe a couple of players will leave balsa behind and move on to other materials that are more supply chain stable can i just add not all balsa comes from illegal logging of of rainforest they have they have balsa plantations and until i read this article i really haven't had enough um opportunity to look in depth to see to what extent um you know this this rain rainforest um deforestation is a big problem um yeah, I, I, my understanding was that balsa was pretty sustainable. It's grown in plantations. It takes six to 10 years for a balsa tree to reach maturity and then you regrow it. So, you know, as long as the industry isn't growing and you, it's just like with any other wood product, you know, you have to make sure that you've got sustainable forest um, management. Um, but I don't see any reason why we need <laughs> the rainforest de- uh, deforestation needs to be part of the balsa supply chain. Um, I think definitely we need to, um, you wouldn't want the industry to just grow and grow and grow because then you would definitely see problems like that. But I think if um, people are responsible with their supply chains, it would be possible to keep on using similar amounts of balsa um, to what we do now and we shouldn't have any problems. It should be sustainable and carbon neutral and, you know, uh, everything like that. Right now, though, isn't it really supply and demand as we need we just more demand? That's going to drive uh, the supply to find other ways to, to get balsa into the marketplace. I, 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 I think this is a quite normal situation, right? The problem is you, you don't have – you're not planning for that kind of huge growth in, in wind and the use of balsa. At the moment, and I, who would have seen five years ago when you when you had to plant those trees that the demand would have grown like it is right now? I, I think that's a problem. We had similar problems, if you remember, way back when we were making uh, tires out of rubber from rubber trees, right? That yeah, the same problem, <laughs> same problem, and I, it's gonna it's gonna change dramatically. I think into synthetic materials or alternative materials or new ways of thinking about the the core material because maybe on smaller blades balsa makes sense. I don't think that there's that that many brand new um, blade designs that that have a lot of balsa. I, I could right. be wrong because you know I only know the one manufacturer, although that they are manufacturing for many many other um, turbine manufacturers, but. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, even if we, you know, keep the same amount of balsa, um, but increase the number of blades, then, you know, obviously the number, amount of balsa is going to increase and you would need to make sure that that doesn't, doesn't happen too severely. And I think that there's already the strong, strong feedback in the, the system where people were in 2019, especially really were affected by their reliance on balsa. So I think that the message has got through even well aside from the environmental impact, which is important. But, um, yeah, there's a, a real supply chain problem if everyone stays reliant on on balsa. 
Yeah, and I feel like it'd be a risky bet for a big manufacturer anyway, where if they're like, hey, we're going to need a lot more turbines in five years than we have now. And, you know, Balsa has some environmental issues with it. It could be really bad PR if, if it continues to come from illegal sources or the rainforest. Um, maybe we should start making the switch to, you know, to PET or other sources of foam now. And then, so then at that point, if some companies are maybe trying to forecast and switch away early, others maybe are sticking with it for a little longer. It's probably hard to figure out, like, do we, you know, do, does a company invest in a new balsa plantation? Like, is that a good bet? Like today, would you, would you want to like start growing new balsa plants or trees? I don't know, because it might not be there at all if they phase it out with uh, artificial material. It's hard to say. And I, mean, I should add, it's not totally trivial to just swap. It's not like you just keep your blade design exactly the same and then you, you swap to the foam. You have to, um, you know, redesign and do a lot more testing. And manufacturers are always nervous to change something like that because, you know, they've got these history of dozens of different um, designs with their, their old materials. They know exactly how they behave in the field and they're very confident that their test test results in the lab or in the test hall, they're very confident that that matches the reality of um, operational experience. And so um, it definitely yeah, isn't something you can just switch overnight in your factory. You're like, oh, hey, we've got rolls of foam now instead of rolls of balsa. Um, yeah. So it, it, it takes a while. And at LM, I, I think they would have worked on it for around a decade before it was kind of, you know, like really ready to go on on full big blades. So let's let's switch gears here to Germany. So obviously the UK government is supporting the construction of the country's first nuclear power station in more than two decades and it'll be in south uh, southwestern England. Yet at the same time, Germany is scaling back on their nuclear power in favor of natural gas. They're planning to phase out nuclear in 2022. Alan, why this shift as as some countries, including the U.S., are starting to give nuclear a second chance? Why is, is Germany sort of going the opposite direction? It's part of a political movement, essentially. Uh, watching some news stories come out of Germany in the, in the nuclear movement. It's, it, there's a big political action. Remember that Germany not long ago was East and West Germany, and they were in the middle of a nuclear uh, showdown between this then Soviet Union and the United States. And the United States still has troops in Germany. And it, that sort of nuclear arms race then sort of got tied to nuclear power and that's evolved over time where nuclear power has, has been seen as being more dangerous than coal plants in some places or more dangerous than natural gas. Uh, and the reality is, is that nuclear power kills a lot less people over its lifetime than coal or gas or anything else. Uh, it's one of the safest energy sources that we have. So the only explanation we are, are right now is it's just part of a political movement. And, and political movements can ebb and flow. And I think the real, real thing that will drive Germany to rethink it is really high energy prices coming from Russia. And uh, uh, nothing changes the populist opinion than hard times. That's likely to happen because of the choices the politicians have made. And they are backed by the electorate, clearly. Uh, and you see the same thing. No country's immune to this. Come on. America has gone through this numerous times and, and had reverse direction. 
that's okay. I think what my hope is that Germany doesn't get too far down the line where they can't do it or they're going to have a lot of coal fire plants to take the gap time to restart the nuclear. Rosemary, do you see that happening in Germany? That it's eventually going to have to bring on some coal plants just to tie them over so they can put some nuclear back in? Yeah, maybe. And I think we probably have already seen that as they've been um, reducing nuclear over the the last few years since Fukushima. Um, I think coal would have been shut down faster if it wasn't for for that. It's hard to, you, you know, do do both at the same time. I I don't have strong feelings about nuclear. I think may, maybe I'm unusual in that respect because most people seem to be very passionate one way or the other. I think, uh, yeah, like, like you say, if you look at the overall safety numbers, it, it's one of, if not the safest <laughs> method of generating electricity definitely much safer than coal, which has a lot of deaths associated from the particulate pollution. I think it's millions around the the world each year dying from coal particulate pollution. So, you know, it's it's better. And if I was in charge of um, Germany's energy transition, then I don't think that I would have prioritised shutting down nuclear. Um, yeah, my main issues with nuclear are mostly just to do with the the cost and whether it's the fastest, cheapest way that we can, you know, move towards decarbonisation. Um, and I know that the British plant is, you know, it just keeps on getting more and more and more expensive. And if you ever get a British and a French person in the room together, um, if they're, you know, energy energy nerds like us, they're definitely going to start talking about nuclear. And, uh, you know, there's going to be the, the Brits, some of them don't, Feel they feel like they've been a little bit swindled. I think when it when it came to this new um, nuclear power plant because it is just so much more expensive than expected. And if you look at the the price that they've agreed to pay from the electricity from it, it's it's high. You know, um, no one's paying that much for offshore wind or um, any any other kind of electricity generation. And I think in Australia, I mean, because I'm yeah, I'm Australian, I'm in a slightly different situation when we don't have nuclear, it's illegal. Um, currently it's not allowed um, by the law that we do develop nuclear. Maybe we will in the future since we've, you know, now got this agreement to get nuclear submarines. Um, but, yeah, it, for me, I've never been pro-nuclear for Australia because I just don't see that we could develop that as fast or as cheaply as we could develop a fully uh, actually renewable electricity grid. So that's my reason for opposing it in Australia. But for places in the world where they don't have those constraints, if they've got an existing nuclear industry, I think that you make your job harder by ruling it out. But I definitely think you can also make a a system that doesn't use it. Um, But, yeah, it's... uh, I don't know. It comes down to economics at the end of the day, like like most of the topics that we that we talk about. Well, last topic today before uh, we get into some 2021 uh, wrap up and some 2022 predictions is Siemens Gamesa. So they are accepting bids for to to sell off their wind farm development unit of their company. Um, you know, people are saying that this deal could be worth about 300 million euros or 340 million dollars. Um, Alan, why why are they doing this? Is this just sort of to focus on their core business of actually manufacturing turbines and they're trying to get out of the operation business? It provides cash to a, a business that is using a lot of cash. And I, I think you're going to see, well, you saw it with GE, right? You saw GE is going to split into three. I, again, that's a cash issue. Uh, 
Vestas is running into cash issues. I think every wind turbine manufacturer is running into cash issues. So if you have hard assets that you can sell off to to firm up or to reduce the the debt load you have on your manufacturing business, you're going to do that. What you see, I'll give you the example of the United States. So Siemens is going to sell off a, basically a division that does not really core essential things for them. But in the United States, what you're seeing right now, because of the prices of real estate, the companies that own real estate are selling that real estate. They're selling that real estate and then leasing the office space back. So if I had an office building and it was worth 10 million bucks or 100 million bucks, I would sell it. I would lease back my, so I get my employees back in that same building and I would keep that cash, right? And that's what's happening across the world right now. So uh, companies are becoming cash strained because of uh, inflationary pressures or because of the uh, price, raw, raw prices of, of raw materials are, are going up. Uh, you need to have cash in that, on that back end because the abilities uh, of you to, to borrow money are going to be limited, I think. So you want to, Stash cash, which is what Siemens Gamesa is doing. And I think other Wintib and OEMs are going to be doing, if they're not doing it right now, they're going to be doing it within the next six months. I think this makes sense. Rosemary, do you see it that way as kind of a, a lot of these manufacturers are trying to just weather this storm where their margins have gotten thin and inflation's putting more pressure on them and the supply chain issues? You think maybe more of this will be coming? Yeah, probably. Um, but it's kind of a short-term fix, isn't it? Uh, I mean, do we expect that the um, margins are going to go up again on wind turbines in, you know, in five years? I, I actually have been changing my mind a little bit on this topic over the, the last couple of months. And um, partly it's because coming back to Australia, they have a bit of a different um, model here of um, development and, you know, ownership operation of, of wind farms. It's nearly always the, the, manufacturers, the OEMs that get the service agreement. And I actually listened to an interview with um, somebody from from Vestas Australia recently, and he was saying that, you, you know, there's a way bigger margin on their service um, their service division than there is on the turbines themselves. And so I can see that, you know, going forward, it might be more, you know, like when you buy a printer, the printer itself is really cheap, but then you pay a lot of money for the cartridges that you put in it. And I wonder if, uh, you know, they keep on having this price pressure on wind turbines. Are we going to see the same kinds of, um, business models develop in the industry where people accept, okay, a wind turbine itself has become basically like a commodity and, you know, they, they feel interchangeable to the market. Um, so then we need to make our money off, off service. Um, and I haven't seen people selling off their service divisions yet, but it does feel like, you know, the development could be, could be part of that as well. Cause I think that there's also some innovations to be more innovations to be made in the development and construction and service part than there is actually in the, the wind turbine it, itself. Um, I think there's a lot of inefficiencies in the way that projects are run and, you know, the order that construction projects get get done sometimes you know like you bring in the person to build the roads after you've got the whole wind farm laid out and they're like oh well yeah I can do it but it's gonna be really expensive to to build the roads where you think they're gonna go if you had got us involved a few years ago then we could have you know done this much cheaper and I mean that's just one tiny example I, I feel like there's opportunities to to go through and really um develop a instead of just using construction methods from 
you know, every other kind of construction project, if you could get somebody that was, you know, like really doing the whole project from start to finish and developing wind turbine, um, wind farm specific, um, technologies, I, I think that there's some, some money to be saved there. And I personally, I think that's where the main cost reductions for, um, for wind energy is going to come in the future. It's going to be from the construction and from the operation and service. So yeah, I, I think it, would be interesting. I hope that we see somebody, you know, go in that direction and try and, um, you know, think about the whole lifetime of the wind farm as a holistic thing and see how we can get improved efficiencies there. So I hope everybody doesn't, doesn't sell off their, their development part. And, um, I hope people, yeah, keep, keep the service as well. Well, yeah, you don't really see this in other industries. I mean, even Apple, which has great margins on their phones, their laptops, right? You pay, pay a premium for, Apple stuff, um, especially when you compare it to like a similar, you know, Windows computer, uh, even they like they want recurring revenue, right? They want that stability. Um, you see this with all sorts of hardware products, especially the ones that are more durable that don't have like the planned obsolescence in it. Uh, there's a, a baseball product that's a couple thousand dollars that's marketed mostly to coaches. Um, and they it's clear to me that they have a tough time getting more revenue out of these people after they've sold them all one. They, they don't like, so they've been upping their subscription thing. This is a, as a side example, but you see this all over where people are like, yeah, we've made hardware. If we make really good hardware, we sell it once and then we got to find more customers where it's probably easier just to continue to extract cash from your existing customers rather than continue to find new, new ones. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I think probably to be well-rounded, you'd want to keep all these arms, but maybe it's just a short-term thing. I don't know, Alan. I mean, have you either of you heard about the McFlurry thing? The FCC in the US in the US is actually uh, investigating McDonald's and this company uh, Taylor that manufactures ice, their ice cream machines. Have either of you heard the story? No, no. What? There's a really interesting <laughs> YouTube video about this. If if you know McDonald's, you know that their yeah. ice cream machines are kind of constantly broken, right? Right. Yet they're manufactured by this company, Taylor, which manufactures right. Wendy's, like all the other places, ice cream machines. Theirs are almost never broken. Like 1% downtime, McDonald's is like 15% downtime. Right. Someone looked into this and it seems like there's some real serious collusion between McDonald's and this company about <laughs> keeping them broken because it's like a 30 or $40 million <laughs> service contract that they that they made like a significant chunk of their their money on service because of these huh. broken McDonald's machines. And the FCC is now looking into it, which is so funny that they're like the FCC is sending a, like an a investigation about their ice cream machines. But it's a real thing. It's, it's really fascinating. There's a really good YouTube oh. video. Um, I'll, I'll link to it in, in the description. It's very fascinating can, if you like McDonald's hot food Sundays. But I can totally I believe that. Well, you know, I, I, that raises an interesting point, actually, that you're talking about really a sub subscription model for wind turbine mm -hmm. operations. Well, how do you how do you do that? You provide the service, right? It becomes a subscription model because you have to continually pay to keep your wind turbine serviced, right? So you're going to get that contract year after year after year. I think if you have look for wind turbine parts online or wind turbine repair manuals online, there is zero, all right? That's that's unusual in the sense that active you have to actively try to keep that stuff off the web. Because you got manuals and people and just thousands and thousands of people have access to that stuff. So in the airplane world, you see manuals come up on on uh, Boeing airplanes or Airbus airplanes. 
but you see Zippo, zero, about wind turbine uh, design features, schematics, uh, uh, repairs. That's not available on the web. And that tells you that it has a huge value, that there's there's been a, a conscientious effort to keep that stuff locked behind lock and key, and that's a pay subscription only. That tells you that there's a huge amount of value in that service, right? And that the, that the OEMs want to control that, that service market. And that's what is fascinating, I think, because it's sort of a different thing. If I'm an airplane owner, I own the manuals. I get the manuals with the, with the airplane and I get to kind of do my own thing a little bit. You're seeing the wind turbine industry kind of go away from that, that, that what, if Vestas sells a wind turbine, Vestas is going to maintain the wind turbine and you're going to be paying Vestas for the 20-year lifespan of the of the turbine. And that may be a totally agreeable by both sides situation, but it just makes sure that there's no outside repair companies. Uh, and that's there's been a huge consolidation, I think, in wind turbine repair companies because of it. And it does help. And Rosemary's right. It does help the bottom line long term because you go into more of a subscription model, which every business is being pushed into right now. So uh, I, I don't see wind turbines operators, OEMs backing away from the repair market. If anything, they're going to get more constrictive and maybe not let anybody else or to pull warranties on their turbines if somebody else, uh, a non-GE person, repairs their turbine. I, I, that's already happened in the United States. And I, I don't think they're going to go away with that because the margins are getting so tight that they need to control that. I just need to add, you, they, they do, you do get a, a manual when you buy a wind, a wind turbine. You do. Uh, you get a manual for the, yeah, for the blade. And if it's got a de-icing system in it, then it has a de-icing manual that was partially produced by my own blood, sweat and tears in many, many cases. So, um, yeah, no, I, I've, I don't know why they haven't found their way onto the internet because they definitely, I mean, other than in Australia, there are plenty of um, owner operators that have nothing to do with the yep. um, with the OEMs. So I That's can't right. see what's, what's stopping them from putting it up on the internet. Maybe they, you know, very often they're not reading them. I know that. <laughs> I know that for sure. They're like, oh, is there a manual <laughs> that came with this when they have a problem a few years later? And you're like, yeah, 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 that maintenance manual. It had a whole bunch of things that you're supposed to do if you wanted to if you wanted to keep mm-hmm. your warranty. And they're like, oh, yeah, right, no, and no, mm-hmm. we didn't do any maintenance, no. Um, so, yeah, maybe that that's the conspiracy is that people find these documents very boring and um, just don't look at them. I can confirm that they are boring. Possible, (laughs) but anything that has value like a wind turbine where it's a couple million dollars to buy the thing, the the manual is worth something. And weirdly enough, you never see manuals online. And I I can go on to the technicians forums and I can see technicians asking every day, does anybody have a schematic for XYZ? Does anybody have the repair manual for this bearing configuration? or for this uh, oil cooler or whatever it is, you just don't see it, right? And I think in every other part of humanity, I can find a manual <laughs> for my refrigerator that was manufactured in 1990, right? Now, that doesn't make any sense when I can't find a, a, something from a wind turbine manufactured in 2000. There's something going on yeah. there. I'm not a conspiracy theorist here, but it does seem like there's a lot of controls about what, what gets out. I would disagree. I mean, maybe your 1990 refrigerator that no one cares about or even imagines yeah. is still running but the right to repair movement in the US is is like actually getting some steam now because 
It is. I mean, with your Apple product or a car or a John Deere tractor, yeah. like people are like, I own a $250,000 combine. Like, uh, farmers are, are right at the forefront of this right to repair movement. They're like, I own yep. this quarter quarter million dollar combine. I'm not allowed to fix it yeah. without taking yeah. it to it. And this is starting to move in, in Congress. And there's actually oh, a couple of prominent YouTubers, totally uh, one specifically, Louis Rossman, who's a, a computer repair guy in, in New York, has a huge YouTube following. And he's been like really using his platform to push right to repair because, yeah, whether it's a turbine or an iPhone, it's like, I own it. Why can't I fix it? And you're right, right that they, they want to keep these this valuable um, intellectual property locked up so that you have to pay technicians yeah. and pay their their rates and, their and rates. do all that. So Right. That's yeah. exactly so we'll it. see how all that flesh, how all that fleshes out. I mean, it's interesting. The right to repair movements are really interesting to follow in in the U.S. So let's jump to end of year questions. Number one, we're going to get right into it. Rosemary, we'll start with you. Most surprising development in wind energy or renewable energy in general here in 2021. Yeah. Okay. So mine is mostly a solar solar thing, but also a bit wind. So it's about the the South Australian electricity grid, which is uh, it's connected to the the rest of the the east side of Australia, but they kind of you know it's just got a couple of interconnectors. So it's a gigawatt scale grid, and so I think it was actually in twenty twenty that for the very first time it it became the first gigawatt scale grid in the world to run purely off solar. Um, and so it just, it's done that a few times. And then if you look, we've got, um, we, you can look at this website called open NIM, um, and see what the current, um, mix of electricity or uh, electricity generation sources is. Uh, if you go on the South Australian grid, I saw last Sunday from 7.30 AM to 7.30 PM, it was, um, they were making more than enough wind and solar power to power their grid. And so they were exporting some. Um, so even it's got a huge proportion of that is from rooftop solar. So the record for rooftop solar is 88.7% of South Australian demand was met by rooftop solar on its own. And they're expecting that sometime soon that's going to reach, um, a hundred percent. Their grid overall, um, was in the last 12 months, 62.3% wind and solar. So, I mean, we have a lot of grids in the world that are, are close to hundred percent renewable, but they always use a whole lot of hydro and sometimes geothermal, which are much kind of easier to, <laughs> to handle as a, um, an electricity source because they're or hydro, at least it's, um, controllable, um, and they're, yeah, more constant. So, I think South Australian grid is really changing what people think is possible for, for variable, for grids served by variable renewables. Um, and one thing that is going to come next year, probably in the same grid is currently you need to have a couple of gas um, turbines turning for the inertia to keep the frequency of the grid correct. And they are actually looking at, they're getting a few. Um, right now they're, they're commissioning for synchronous condensers, which is a way to artificially, well, without, um, it's a way to set the grid frequency without having any kind of thermal generation in the system. So I think probably next year we'll see periods where the grid is operating without any kind of fossil fuel in it whatsoever. And I, I think that's really exciting because it shows what you can do with purely variables, which I think a lot of people would be surprised to to see that you can already take it that far. 
62.3% wind and solar over the last 12 months. So, yeah, I'm really excited for what's happening there. Alan? I think there have been two big changes over the last year. First is recycling, that we went from essentially burying all blades uh, in the springtime of this year to now massively pushing recycling around the world. <laughs> and that happened in a matter of weeks. I think it, it, I think the engineers behind it were working for years before they had to like get the go button and say, all right, we got to turn it on because the PR and the press is bad. So we needed to turn blade recycling on. Great. That's a fantastic technological improvement because it does remove a lot of things in the landfill. And the second is floating wind. And we're just really getting started with it, but there's still a lot of technology that needs to be sussed out. There's some interesting concepts. We're going to be doing some of them in the next year, two, three, off the coast of the United States. And obviously, so there are some being developed elsewhere. But the floating wind is going to be fascinating because uh, there's just so many slightly different variations to the solving the same problem. Which one's going to be the most effective? We still don't know. Uh, so the engineers are going to be working overtime to, to figure that all out. All right, let's go to a quick question here. Um, so in 2022, Rosemary, do you see that we'll have more development of wind, of wind farms or will we see some sort of slowdown or plateau because of inflation and some of these other pressures on costs and supply chain that we've seen with developers? I think we'll see more and more and more every single year for another couple of decades. That's my prediction. Uh, I, I think that the forces driving increased uh, construction are stronger than the, the forces that are holding it back. So I, I think we'll, we'll see uh, an effect of the supply chain issues with costs, but not with speed of rollout. That's my prediction. Okay. Inflation be damned. Alan? There's going to be more leases and there's going to be more land acquisitions, but leases offshore, that will continue to ramp up its already accelerated pace. The, I think in terms of installs, there's not, they're going to slow down. I think they're going to try to uh, find the least costly way to get these turbines into the water, which will typically mean going a little bit slower. So although you're going to see the development happen. It's not going to happen as rapidly as we may like. I think this, the second piece to this is the involvement of Chinese-based wind turbine uh, manufacturers in Europe and possibly in the United States. We're already seeing it this week with the announcement that uh, one of the Chinese manufacturers is talking about building a, a wind turbine manufacturing site in the UK, and it's already got approval from the UK government. There's going to be more of that. It's going to be more of a push as prices are driven down and there's less margins. You're going to see uh, China step into that void. So there's a, you're going to see more development. But the, the really interesting piece, I think, is going to be the China aspect and how countries are going to deal with that. We should make a bet and um, check back in next year. Number, But we're talking onshore plus offshore, right? If we have more, mm -hmm. more gigawatts installed in 2022 than 21, then... You owe me $100. No, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 come on. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> you said there's going to be less. You said it's going to slow down. No, That's no, what no. It means. I think less, the, less gigawatts. I think, well, <laughs> well, they're talking about, they're talking about 10, 30 gigawatts by 2030. They're going to get there, but it's not going to happen in the first couple of years. It's going to be ramped towards 2030. They're going to wait until the economic conditions are better. 
Do you think there'll be more gigawatts installed in 2022 than there were in 2021 or less? It's going to be roughly the same or maybe a little bit less. If inflation is at 7 to 9%, like it's about to be in the United States, you will see less. I think you'll see a lot of uh, refurbishment happen, like taking existing wind turbines, uh, putting new generators and blades on them because that's the least expensive option. Onshore will happen. Offshore is a different, little bit different animal uh, because you have the, the federal government pouring so much cash into it in the United States that it may balance out anyway. There may be enough profit in it just to keep going. Uh, but inflationary pressures are real, and they will slow down an economy greatly, uh, especially if we just announced in the United States we're going to have, I think, three or four scheduled increases in interest rates. Uh, the, the interest rates which banks get charged by the federal government, essentially, or what banks can charge themselves. So that has pressure on everything. And having lived through a couple of those, I, it's going to slow down. And the question is how much? Okay, well, I propose a $100 Ben & Jerry's gift card as the wager. And if you guys don't <laughs> want it, whoever the winner is, you can just give it to me. So, you know, no big deal. <laughs> Um, all right, moving on to question four, where do you think we'll see the biggest job growth in 2022? It being in technicians or engineers, um, do you see like a, obviously there's been a big push for, um, more diversity in the workforce. Do you see more female engineers or uh, engineers of color? Like what do you see flowing into wind energy next year? Um, I, I think yes, lots more service technicians. But what I, I see in terms of engineers, lots more in operations. I, I know I get asked a lot by a lot of people. Do I know <laughs> engineers with electrical <laughs> or renewables background that want to come work on their operations team? So anyone with that background should get in touch because I know lots of people that want to hire you. Um, I think that we're going to to see people get a lot more smart about operations. The in Australia and I assume elsewhere, it's really changing the way that wind farms need to be operated to make a profit. It's it's not as as easy um, as it used to be because we do see a lot of negative prices now or at least periods of very low prices and people really want to get smart about how they're operating these assets to, to make money and I think that that is a really big, big growth area. Um, in terms of more diversity, I, I wish I would love that. The last wind energy conference I was at was shocking, shockingly male dominated. It really did take my breath away when I, I walked into the room the first time and I felt I was followed around by the photographer just to make sure that there were some women in their, in their photos from the event. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's not fast, right? It's, um, you, you can't just conjure women and, um, yeah, people of, of color with, 10 years experience in the industry you can't conjure them it takes time and I don't see that much commitment <laughs> to to getting that pipeline in place and making it um, a more pleasant working environment it's you know it's it's rough to be a, a minority um, at work people who haven't ever been might not realize just how much it can just grind you down just from um, you know being culturally different um every every single day and i i don't really see a lot of change happening um we're moving in the right direction but i don't think it's fast and i wouldn't i wouldn't expect a noticeable difference in the next 12 months rosemary raises some good points i, I it's it, it's it's interesting your viewpoint on that rosemary I, because i i you know it, working in wind is not easy 
first off. It, it's just an outdoor job. It's a lot of lifting, especially if you're climbing a lot and working on ropes. It's, it's physically a very challenging thing, and very few people on this planet can even do that. Uh, so that, that kind of narrows the scope of who's able to even try it, just honestly. So uh, I think that that role um, will be limited into the to physically strong people. That's who it's going to be. I, I think the growth area, though, is really in uh, places like project in the project side and in in some development side there seems to be a lot of uh, different companies uh investment groups that are looking into development so i think you're going to see more insurance people i think you're going to see more lawyers i think you're also going to see uh more kind of project engineers and management uh, types that are are trying to manage all these moving pieces especially if you've got a new developments going on and and you're you know, like Rosemary saying you're trying to squeeze out and optimize what's happening. You need to put some people on it and get that going. And with when moving offshore, there's a lot more variables there, like ships and uh, the safety requirements. It's just so many more variables that you're going to need to have uh, a, a management-wise more of a sort of a deeper team, broader width of a team. To, to go support those things. I think that's where I would expect to see uh, some growth on the professional side. The technician side, I think is always going to be growing as more, as there's more wind turbines, there's going to be more, more technicians and there's more opportunities than ever uh, in the United States in particular, because you can get training from a lot of community colleges. It doesn't cost very much to, to get some really good local training and get a really good Paying job. There are technicians I, I, that contact us that are making $100,000 a year as technicians. That's a good gig. And I think more of those jobs will come about next year, too, just because of all the wind turbines we already have in service. It's fun, too. Um, I, I love it when I get to tag along with wind turbine technicians for a day. I, <laughs> I think it's a really, really varied yeah. job. And you're, yeah, it's, you're outside a lot. It's nice. The last question, uh, two-parter. Will we see a bigger turbine announced in 2022? Obviously, they maybe can't do it every year, but will we see one announced at all? And will we see sort of a chosen design as far as floating? Like, there's been a lot of different designs, but will we see one sort of design maybe pull ahead of the others? Okay, so I have I have actually a bold bold prediction here. So uh -oh. I think that yes, we'll see a bigger one announced because there's already things in in the pipeline, and I know that people are planning projects already that use like 18 megawatt um, turbines. So we're gonna we're gonna see someone announce and stuff like that. But I think we're gonna really soon get to the point where we're gonna see like a bifurcation in the um, wind turbine technology. You're gonna see some designs continue to go bigger. But I also think we're going to get to the point where some companies are going to start to say, we can't make money off a bigger and bigger turbine. And I think you're going to see people start to um, take a look at the benefits of modularity and maybe um, I think the floating floating wind turbine tech that Alan was mentioning before fits in well to this. I think that there's some opportunity to get more, uh, more out of a, a wind farm as a whole by maybe making a floating platform with several turbines uh, or several rotors on it at least, whether it's multiple turbines or it's a multi-rotor like the, you know, the one that Vestas tried a few years ago that can, you know, like rotate 
together and not get in each other's way and maybe simplify some of the um, maintenance by having, you know, little mini platforms. I think we'll start to see something, something like that. I, I don't think that it's going to be only bigger from now on. I think that we're getting close to the point where people are going to look to other ways to, to extract more value out of a wind farm. Obviously, yes, bigger turbines uh, immediately. I think if <laughs> the Vestas or Siemens or GE or Nordex doesn't do it, there's, uh, you know, I think the Chinese will do it just for national pride's sake. So whatever, whatever Europeans and the Americans come up with, there will be a bigger one in China. Okay, cool. The the floating wind is a different or is just a different animal, and I I don't know if we're going to find out. We're going to find out very quickly which floating platform is the least costly over time. That one I will need a couple more years of of turbines in the water to really figure out because it's just like onshore w wind. Honestly, that it took us three or four or five years to figure out we had. Uh, onshore wind problems and what to do about it and the next generation comes around and you have it figured out. The floating piece is really unique and what the loads are going to be on the blades and on the towers and what that looks like and can, are they designed to take those loads? And a lot of that has to do with the platform. It just does. And how that all those pieces interact because you think of these big massive structures as being very mechanically stiff. They're not mechanically stiff. They're moving and flexing and, and breathing is what I call it. They're moving around enough that it, they're almost like a live creature. And that's where in that movement and flexing and bending uh, in the hot and the cold that bad things happen. And we're all gonna, we only know that as engineers from experience. And unfortunately, we're going to have to go through a little bit of a rough patch. I think it's inevitable uh, that that's going to happen. But the, the floating wind piece is still open, I think. All right. Any final predictions from either of you two? Yeah, I have one. I think 2022 is going to be the year of virtual power plant and especially for um, virtual power plants that include homes in the in the mix or focus on homes. So, you know, houses that have rooftop solar, houses that have batteries, maybe they have an electric vehicle. Um, we're seeing in Australia now we've got such a high penetration of rooftop solar and people are starting to, you know, like really screw screw back how much money you can get by supplying that to the grid. But uh, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of unfair because it, there's no time of day component to it. So, you know, if you're supplying... Um, your solar power in the middle of the day when prices are negative, you get the same price, low price, as if you're supplying it in the evening from your battery when, you know, prices are very high. And I think that business models that can take advantage of that inefficiency and give give some of that value to households, that can be very powerful. There's in, in Australia, at least, there's a huge amount of rooftop solar. People are, are keen to get batteries. Um, and I think as we get more EVs as well, there's just like a, a huge potential to really start to treat that whole very distributed system as as a whole, um, add some real value to the electricity network, reduce the need for transmission upgrades potentially. I just think there's so much value there. And what's missing is the, the business case, the or not the business case, the business models to, to make it work and, um, you know, make sure that everyone who's participating is benefiting from it. So that's that's what I desperately want to see in 2022, and I don't see 
huge technical reasons why it couldn't. So I think that we're ready for it. I have two things that I think would be amazing to see next year. Real carbon capture. Real carbon capture. <laughs> and I, I think we're very close to it right now, Rosemary. And I know you're a doubter in this, but I think there's going to be some significant efforts in 2022 in carbon capture, even if it's just Tesla and SpaceX and Musk driving it or Google driving it. I think there'll be some carbon capture. The second one I think is, is I think it's coming because of the way energy prices are going to be in the United States is floating storage, floating battery storage. So we, this company in Japan that has a floating battery storage, I think that's a real thing. I think there's a possibility that floating battery storage will supplant, will help the offshore wind industry. I think those two things are likely to happen. That that is very interesting, and I do agree about the carbon capture because the the price of um, carbon price is going very high. I think over a hundred euros, or it's expected to be soon. Um, and can I just add that billionaires that are flying pl- private jets should all be offsetting their carbon with direct air capture or, or, or something that costs costs a lot, but is you know very uh, robust, robust and verifiable. Help them get the the cost of that technology down so that in twenty you know forty fifty when we need it, it's there. So all the billionaires that listen to this podcast, and I know that there's a lot. Um, <laughs> please start offsetting your private jet flights with direct air capture. <laughs> I personally want you to continue on those jet flights because that keeps revenue into my company. So I need I need people <laughs> to be flying. So keep flying as much as you possibly can. The airplane industry is doing a ton of, of energy improvements and carbon dioxide reductions on the way that they, they fly those aircraft. But I, I need people to be flying. So I agree with Rosemary that we should all reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I think carbon capture is the way to do it. Whoever decides to step up and do it, I just don't care. I think it's going to be something that uh, the world will grab hold of here, hopefully in 2022. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Uh, Thanks, number one, for listening this past year. You know, we've reached uh, 90 plus episodes, closing in on the big 100. So thank you for being a a great listener and sharing the show and and all that. So we appreciate you. We've grown a lot this this year and we can look forward to a, a great 2022. So thanks again. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share with a friend, have a safe and happy new year, and we will see you here in 2022. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.